Morning, Village Church. I'm Matt, I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and I'm glad to be with you uh, this morning. I'm also glad that the Sellers family is with us this morning. Pastor Aaron and Kristen, can you say um, hello to them? Yes. And so some of you are chanting whoop whoop, you know, because you know that Pastor Aaron is a pastor here for a long time and uh, has been in Vermont for now some time, pastoring a church there. And some of you are like, who are Pastor and Aaron? Who's Pastor Aaron? And Kristen, and they have been faithful pastors in our church for many years. And uh, they're here on, on vacation, a trip with the family. There's so many new faces in the village. And whether you know Pastor Aaron and Kristen uh, or you don't, I'd encourage you to see them after service and spend some time with them. Um, we're so glad that you guys are here. We are all together here wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're coming to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in the end of this sermon series called The Meaninglessness of Life. And the teacher has told us many times just how meaningless life is under the sun, S-U-N, right? How many times has he told us vanity of vanities, all is vanity, everything is vanity. But all along the way, the teacher has also told us, um, as he's told us about the meaninglessness of life, he's also told us no less than seven times that there is meaning in life. And that there is meaning in life. And that the meaning of life is to enjoy God and all that he's created. And last week as we got out of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we saw that sort of theme begin again. Him telling us the, the meaning of life is to enjoy God and to enjoy all the things that God has created for us. And so as we get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we can start with some good news. And so I want to start with the good news this morning instead of just end with the good news this morning. I believe it would be something like this, that we can enjoy God and all that he's created when we fear God and obey his commandments. We could also say it this way, when we fear God by obeying his commandments. Now, as Christians, when we talk about fearing God, we talk about revering God, being in awe of God. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, and you came in and you're like, yeah, that's what I thought you Christians were all about. You're afraid of God, and so you try to do things to please God and appease God because you're afraid of Him. And I would say, nothing could be further from the truth. That as Christians, we don't fear God in the sense that we're afraid of Him. We fear God in the sense that we are in awe of Him and that we revere Him. And as we'll talk about at the end of our time this morning, the wonderful thing about Christianity, the good news about Christianity is that, is that we don't need to live in fear of God like being afraid of God because we're trying to appease him. God has already been appeased by Jesus, his son, on our behalf. And so as Christians, when we talk about the fear of God, we talk about being in awe of God and revering God for who he is. And in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, and in this context in particular in chapter 11 and 12 in this section, we fear God as the creator. We stand in awe of God. We revere him as the one that's created everything under the sun. As the one who sustains, as Colossians reminds us in the New Testament, everything. As he's the one that holds all things together. We stand in awe of him as the creator. And all that is he has created, we, we revere him as the one that he, who has created us in his image and likeness and knows what's best for us in the life that he has created for us. And so again, there is good news. We can enjoy God and all that he has created when we fear God and obey his commandments. When we fear God by obeying his commandments. 
Obeying his commandments is the way that we prove that we are in awe of God. Obeying his commandments is the way we prove we do revere him and fear him in this biblical, godly way. And we want to enjoy him. It proves that we want to enjoy him and all that he's created for us. And the question that the original audience would be asking at the end of this book is, well, then how do we do that? And you might be asking that question this morning. How do we obey God in this way? And the teacher tells us how he did it. And that can give us a pretty good idea of how we can do it as well. And it begins in verse 9. Would you look at it with me? He says, besides being wise, this may be the teacher and some commentators believe this may be an editor. But either way, the points are the same. Besides being wise, the preacher who also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So we ask ourselves, how do we obey God's commandments so that we can prove in a sense that we fear God, that we revere him, that we, we honor him, that, that we stand in awe of him? How can we obey God's commandments to, to demonstrate that this is the reality of our lives, that we do stand in fear of God and reverence of him? believe we can learn this, the first answer to this question this morning is that to obey God's commands, we have to think about God's commands. If we're going to obey God's commands in this way, we have to spend some time thinking about God's commands. And I want to pause and say, this is really, really important, especially in the cultural context that we live in. We live in a culture that is constantly pushing us to act before we think. You know, don't think about it, just do it. Social media is a huge driver of this that, well, the teacher knew nothing of. Certainly there were messages that were coming uh, his way, uh, usually by papyrus or something like that. But in our day, messages come our way all the time. And if you're late to the game posting something on social media that our culture says that you should be posting or affirming something that our culture says you should be affirming or not doing it fast enough or you don't say anything and then you get blamed for this, I mean, they are pushing us and pressing us just to move and to act before we even think. This is really, really important in this day and age that to obey God's commands, we have to think about God's commands. And while this is particularly true here, I want to say this is nothing new. This was, in a sense, as true in the ancient world as it is in our world. And the teacher was wise to this. The teacher is wise, and he was wise to this. He was wise to this idea that the world is going to be pressing us just to act before we think. He was wise to it, and he was so wise to it that he became one of the wisest people that ever lived. And the Old Testament definition of wisdom is thoughtful obedience. When he is saying that he was wise and he began to teach others knowledge, that he, he, was, he was one that gave himself to thoughtful obedience. See, Old Testament wisdom is not just theoretical and it's not just intellectual. It's also very practical wisdom. It's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. That is what biblical wisdom is. This, that is what this Old Testament wisdom is. And the teacher was wise, one of the wisest that ever lived, because he obeyed God's commands. It's not just about what he knew. He knew a lot. It's about what he did with it. 
he obeyed God's commands so much so that he began to teach others how to do it. Now, if we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, we know he did not always do this. <laughs> he gave himself to a lot of things he ought not. But somehow he learned obedience to God's commands. Somehow he learned how to do this and to communicate it to others in the end. How did he do it? Well, he must have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And the reason I can say that is because that's what he says or that's what the editor says looking back on all of it. Weighing, studying, arranging this is a very intentional, thoughtful progression. He starts with weighing. The word means to ponder or to put in the balance. So to look at the wisdom of the world and to look at the wisdom of God and to weigh those things out and put them in the balance. What does contemporary worldly wisdom say about something and what does the Bible say about something? And again, this is extremely important that we stop long enough to weigh things out, to think about them, to ponder them, to put them in the balance, especially in a culture that, again, is, is, is pushing us to act before we think. What does this mean for us? Well, our world is pressing us into places that says, this is what identity is all about. This is what the culture says. This is how you defined your identity. I can create my own identity. And the Bible is like, well, what does the Bible say about that? The Bible says my identity comes from my creator. That outweighs the worldly wisdom to be sure. The world is telling us, oh, in terms of marriage and relationship, you can have any relationship with anyone at any time. Marriage doesn't matter. That's what the worldly wisdom is saying in the balance. And so what does God say? God says that marriage is about one man and one woman for one lifetime. And that makes a lot more sense. Why? Ponder it and weigh it out. Just stop for a moment to think about what God's word says about marriage and why that's so much better, so much more helpful, so much more productive, saves us from so much pain. Put it in the balance and weigh it out. Just stop long enough to think. What does the world say about work? Do as little work as possible and make as much money as possible. <laughs> right? The eight-hour work week. What does the Bible say about work? Work hard unto the Lord. Work six days and rest one. That's what the Bible says. Work is a good thing, not something to be avoided. What does the what the world say? What does the Bible say? Put it in the balance and weigh it out and see how God's word comes out on top every single time. Village Church, how do we obey God's commands? We think about God's commands. We pause long enough to weigh these things like he did. If I could just step aside and just give a commercial for the Maven conference that's coming up. Many of you know the Hendricks, and they're really involved in the Maven ministry, which is geared toward apologetics. And there's a conference coming up at the end of this month that's going to talk about all of these issues about identity and marriage and family and sexuality and work. And they're going to talk about all these concepts in depth. They're going to weigh it out. And you're going to get to sit in seminars and see, you know, when you weigh it out, God's word always comes out on top. If you just stop for a moment to think about it. He weighed it. This is why biblical authority is our highest value at the Village Church. We're always asking the question, what does the Bible say about that? 
He weighed it, and then he studied it. This word means to search through, to search it thoroughly through as well. To dig, to mine, to look for those hidden gems in there. The hidden gems of wisdom that we just don't see on the surface. This means tracing something maybe back through biblical theology, looking through the whole Bible. Where does this start in Genesis? And where is this now? And where is it going? And to, to dig more, not just to weigh the balance, but so what does the Bible actually say about my identity? Going back to Genesis, knowing that I'm created in God's image and his likeness, but realizing that there was the fall and something is broken. But now that I'm a Christian, I, I place my faith and hope in Christ, and now I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. And later, I'm going to be glorified together with him. Like, I'm going to be transformed to be like him forever. That's what the Bible says about it. Mining what the Bible says about marriage and relationship, that God created male and female, one man, one woman for one lifetime. Things are broken, and we see all the brokenness of marriage throughout the scriptures. But we see Jesus coming back, teaching on marriage, affirming marriage, pointing people back to Genesis, and then looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And ultimately, where all, these, all this imagery and all that we're learning in our, in our marriage and all the reasons for our marriage pointing to something much bigger to come. What does the Bible say about work all the way back in the beginning, tending and keeping and stewarding those things? You know, what does work like now? It's hard because it's broken. And what is it going to look like in the future? Like, we're going to be doing things entrusted with work in heaven, I believe. I mean, the Bible's clear on, on these kinds of things. We're going somewhere with this. What does the Bible say in total about a subject? Study it. Dig into it. Again, I'll step aside and I'll give a plug for the Apprentice Academy. Pastor Matt Bowman's going to be back from his trip tomorrow. And we're going to be an apprentice on Tuesday. And... And we're going to be pressing into covenant theology coming up in the next number of weeks. And we're going to learn more about this. We're going to dig in to the whole story of God on all kinds of subjects. The teacher's saying, I weighed it, I studied it, and I arranged it. This word means to make straight or to order. To make a plan based on these proverbs, a proactive plan, not a reactive plan. I know how I'm going to act, and, and I know that because... Well, I mean, these Proverbs tell me what to do. The Bible says this, so I'm going to do that. So we create a plan, and in this context, based on these sort of pithy Proverbs. Verse 10 tells us, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. He sought to find words of delight. They're aesthetically pleasing, this literally means. And words of truth, they all are true. And so he sought to find words that were pleasing to the ear, but were also true at the same time. And we live in a culture that, well, finds words that are pleasing to the ear, maybe not so true. And maybe sometimes we find words that are really true, but we don't really quite know how to say it. And these proverbs are, well, they're truthful things that are said in a way that is, well, easy to remember. He created these proverbs, these wise sayings to help himself as well as others to obey God's commands. That's why the proverbs exist, to teach us how to obey God's commands and live our lives enjoying God and all that he's created for us, well, in the way he created us to enjoy it. So maybe for identity, you would have a, a little phrase that would be something like, I am Christ and Christ is mine. That is a short phrase that reminds you of your identity. 
that, that you are Christ's and he is yours. Theologians call that union with Christ. And there are all kinds of Bible verses that undergird that reality. But you could say it in a short phrase, I am Christ's and Christ is mine. Maybe when it comes to marriage, I've already said it a number of times, it's one man and one woman for one lifetime. And so when you're in it and that's difficult, you go back to that, you remind yourself, one man, one woman, one lifetime. There's all kinds of scriptures that undergird that idea. In our area, we talk about work. We talk about work hard and play hard. What about work hard and rest hard? That's a more biblical idea. Right? That we work six days and we rest one. And again, that is a simple phrase, kind of like a modern proverb that, well, has all kinds of Bible verses that undergird and support that. And so this is what the teacher did. He weighed these things. What is the world's wisdom? What is God's wisdom? He studied it and mined it, the depths of it. And then he arranged it in a way that was helpful for him to apply to his life and the lives of those around him. Some of you might be saying, well, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I can do that. It sounds like a lot of work, weighing like, God, like worldly wisdom and God's wisdom and then like digging really deep and then like trying to create some kind of phrase that helps me to obey God's wisdom. Like that sounds really hard. And I just want to say, you do that all the time. Right? You do that all the time. You, you pick up something that looks a little bit like this, and you get um, on, a, on an app that starts with I and ends with Graham, and, and you go something like, my best day with the bestie. No, no, no. Um, my best day in the best place with my bestie. No, no, it's too much best. My, and you will spend minutes or, should we say hours sometimes, trying to come up with the perfect caption. Right, the perfect phrase to perfectly communicate to the whole world what you're doing. We know how to do this. Maybe we should know how to do this with God's word. And I just want to say, if we don't know how to do this, it's already been done for us. If you're thinking, I'm not sure how to do that, there's a lot of work. Listen, there's an entire book of the Bible. It's called the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters of these things. There's 31 chapters of little bits of godly wisdom. The, it's been weighed. It's been, it's been tilled and, and searched out. And it's been arranged in a very pithy and truthful way. And you could read a chapter a day and you could gain God's wisdom on an ongoing basis. Some of you might say, well, Matt, that's great, but I'm not that smart when it comes to the Bible. I would not know where to start with this. Just weighing all these things and searching them out and then arranging them. I, I get there's the book of Proverbs, but this feels like a little bit bigger task than that. And I would just point you to the book of Corinthians where Paul is talking about this idea of, of godly and heavenly and worldly wisdom and sort of juxtaposing them. And he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. <clears throat> and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. This is the fool in the book of Ecclesiastes that lives their life, not under the sun, S-O-N, but just under the sun, S-U-N, with no thought of the meaning maker. But the spiritual person judges all things. Because, but he himself is judged by no one, for who can understand the mind of the Lord as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. And I would just say, if you are a Christian here this morning and the spirit of Christ indwells you, you have the mind of Christ. Like you can consider these things. You've been given everything that you need. 
the Holy Spirit will point your attention back to the things that Jesus has taught you. Jesus promised that would be true. We have what we need to do this. And it's really important that we do because there are some really important things that come along with obeying God's commands in this thoughtful, biblical way. First one starts in verse 11. Look at it with me. The words of the wise are like a goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. I think the second thing we can learn from the teacher this morning is this, that we should obey God's commands because they guide us and they ground us. We should obey God's commands because they guide us and they ground us. There is nothing better to guide us in life. There's nothing better to ground us in life than God's commands. And don't we all need that? Don't we all want to be led in the right direction? I mean, we don't want to just be spinning our wheels. Where should I go and what should I do and what school should I go to and where should I live and who should I marry and what should I do for work and what church should I attend? And what? We, we, don't, we don't want to be frenetic about that. We want to be guided. And what the Bible says is God's commands actually guide us. And then once we're there, they ground us. They create safety. They create security. Once we get to the place that God is guiding us, we're like, we're at rest and we're safe and we're secure. This is what God's, these are what, this is what God's command does. It guides us and it grounds us. They are like goads. A goad is like an ancient cattle prodder. Right? The shepherd would prod the animal in the right direction to guide them in a way that, that pushes them away from danger and prods them in a direction that's the best for them. You know, maybe you would think about something like Psalm 23 where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And I think we think about that in terms of, well, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me and guides me. He's just so sweet. And he is. <laughs> but the reality is that the shepherd, the shepherd prods with the goads sometimes. That he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The reality is in the Old Testament times, as well as the new, a shepherd would lead, yes, but he would goad his sheep toward the right direction to go. And guess what? The goads work. And you know why? Because they cause pain. <laughs> because they cause pain. It's the reason why they work, because they cause pain. It gets your attention. And I, I, I know and I understand it may be painful sometimes to, to look at God's word and to look at God's commands. To be in a certain circumstance in life and, and to say this is where I am at and this is what God's word says about it and I don't like that. It is painful, but it is good. It's painful to you, but it is good for you. It's painful to me, but it is good for me. It is the goads of God. He is goading us in the right direction. It's meant to move us in the right direction. It's meant to protect us from lying down in the wrong pasture and to provide for us the exact pasture that is perfect for us. The goads are meant to protect us and to provide for us. That's what the good shepherd does. Maybe some of you are thinking all the way to the New Testament and you're thinking to the book of Acts and you would be right to go there. At the time, Saul was, well, he was running as far away from God as he could. He was, he was as disobedient as he could possibly be to the point of persecuting the church of Christ. 
And you remember that he's telling his story about his conversion in Acts 26. And, and he recalls when he had fallen to the ground, he says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And, he, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the, and the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's what this means. God had been trying to get his attention, prodding him in the right direction, and Saul was going the opposite way, and he was going hard. So hard that Jesus has to show up, knock him off of his donkey, and say, isn't this tough, Saul? It's time. The question this morning is, is there any way you are cooking, cooking against the goads right now? God is trying to guide you in a certain way, and he might be using the goads to prod you into a place that is really his best for you and to protect you from anything that's less than that, but you are kicking against the goads. We should obey God's commands because they're meant to guide us, but they're also meant to ground us. There's this idea of the nails, which is the ancient tent pegs. And shepherds would use these tent pegs as they were traveling around. They were, well, Bedouins, and they were going from place to place and pasture to pasture, and they'd go set up their tent, and they would use the pegs to stake their tents. If you've camped, you've done this before. And the point of the <clears throat> stakes is to make the tent stable and secure, especially when the storms would come up. In that area, they would have sandstorms and windstorms, and it would blow hard. And if your tent wasn't staked down right, it was gone. Everything that you had was gone when the harsh weather would blow in. And God's word and God's commands are like tent pegs in our life, driven down into the ground. They ground our lives. God's commands ground us, keep us safe, keep us secure, especially when the storms of life blow in. A number of years ago, I was um, together with a bunch of pastors, and actually we were in this room, <clears throat> and we were gathered around tables, and we were talking about this reality in the life of our church. How do we ground our churches? And the guy that was leading the discussion used this, um, this analogy of, of, the, of the tent pegs, and um, I'm not very good at computer art, but do you guys see a tent there with, with pegs and, and rope? Do you see that? You see that, right? And in the middle is, is sort of the, the, the middle, the stake, the, the grounding post. And we talked about this idea of like grounding our church with something cent central, just sticking a stake in the ground, and this is the center of it. And then there would be four pegs that would keep us grounded in, those, in that place, that would keep us grounded on that thing. This is the main support, and those are the pegs that ground us. And so we all, I have my journal where I, you know, I drew mine out and I drew the, this, the pegs. And you can imagine where they are. They're things like delighting in God and declaring. I mean, they're, they're the, all the things that are related to our core values and core focus. The center peg being, you know, the glory of God, the gospel of Christ. But I just show this to you because you could do this with anything in your life. Like if you're in here and you're married and you want to like ground your marriage for the life of your marriage, you could, you could use this and you should use this just to say, what is our marriage grounded on? What's the centerpiece? And then what would be the tent pegs? And, and what scriptures would ground that? And this might be a helpful exercise. Maybe you're in college or you're approaching your career and you're thinking about your work. You can do this with that. You could do this with anything. How is this going to ground you? How is God's word going to ground all kinds of things in your life? 
One commentator, Sidney Granis, says it this way, the goads prod us to movement in the right direction and the nails firmly fixed provide stability and security. What scriptures are the decisions of your life grounded in? Like right now, you're looking for wisdom in something in life, in an area of your life. Where is that grounded? What are the tent pegs that are driven into the ground that are going to keep you and hold you there? Now, because obeying God's commands guide us and ground us, the editor tells us, or could be the teacher, that there's something we should never do. Never do this. Verse 12, my son, beware. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness to the flesh. And all the college students said, <laughs> amen. I think thirdly, we learn here this morning, we should never look beyond God's commands. We should never look beyond God's commands because God's commands are what guides us. The only thing that can ultimately rightly guide us. And because God's commands ground us. Again, the only thing that can rightly ground these things in our lives. We should never look beyond God's commands. And there are a lot of places to look this day and age. Google estimates. This is an estimate, but it seems pretty specific. <laughs> that there are 156,264,880 book titles in 2022. 156 million. This does not include e-books, audio books, and books that do not have an ISBN number. So can you imagine how many books there are in the world today? This is what the teacher says. Of making of many books, there is no end, and much study is worrisome to the flesh. On top of all of those books, we have Audible subscriptions. We can read anywhere, anytime with our ears. We don't have to use our eyes to read. We have Kindle, so we can actually take our books. We can reference any book anywhere at any time. We have podcasts. We can learn about anything we want to in the world. We can literally learn about anything. We pick a topic, and someone's got a podcast or two on it. You can learn about anything you want to learn. There is so much to learn. And I think it's wonderful to learn all these things. But as we learn them, we should always be asking ourselves the question, what does the Bible say about this? Maybe another good question would be, have I read my Bible enough to learn about this? There are all kinds of great things to read, but we actually have the best thing to read. Have we read the Bible enough about that topic? Have we read the Bible enough about how to decide about that thing? Have I spent enough time reading my Bible or I may listen to podcasts and audiobooks? And the Bible has all the wisdom we need for everything in life. We should never go beyond God's commands. If someone else is telling you in their newest book, this is the way you, you, you live life in marriage, but God's word says it's this way, never, never go there. We should never go beyond God's commands. Peter says it this way, his divine power has granted to us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. We have relationship with God. We have all the knowledge we need. We have all the wisdom we need for anything in life as we look to God's word and to his commands. Have you, have you been looking beyond God's commands? Is there something in your life that, that you're really trying to learn about and grow in, but you've, you've looked so far beyond God's commands that now you're not growing very much? Or you're growing in a way that's contrary to the good growth that God might have for you? At the end of all of this, there's an ultimate reason we should never look beyond or outside of God's commands. And we see it in verse 13. It's the crux of the matter. The end of the matter, he literally says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The ultimate purpose of life, the teacher is saying, or the editor is saying, looking back on all that the teacher has taught, is to fear God and obey his commands. And the teacher has been telling us this all along. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it so that people should fear before him. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Chapter 7, verse 18. If it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And now he tells it to us in the most succinct way possible. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man means this is what man is for. To stand in awe and reverence of God and to obey God's commands and so enjoy God through that and enjoy all that God has created. This is our purpose. This is our end. But it's not just our purpose. There's a second but equally important reason, and he says it in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And he's told us this in chapter 3, and he's told us this in chapter 11, but the last verse he reminds us it's not just it's not just our purpose in life it's it's our protection in life it standing in awe of god and in fear and reverence of him and obeying his commands is a protection to us protects us from god's judgment and god is good to judge certain things god is good to judge sin god is good to judge injustice You might say, well, <laughs> again, the book that way, you, you said we're starting with good news because this is chock full of good news. And at the end of it, it's God will bring everything into judgment, whether it's a secret thing or whether it's good or evil. Like all the things that no one can see, God's judging. How is that good news? And the way it's good news for us as Christians is we know that, well, we don't stand under God's judgment any longer. Because we know that Jesus has come to live a life that we could never live, a life of perfect obedience toward God. The author of Hebrews says that he was tested in every way that we are, yet without sin. That Jesus lived this perfectly obedient life before God on our behalf. And if you're not yet a Christian, that's a really, really important thing to understand about what Christians believe. 
We believe that we can't obey all God's commands on our own. And you've noticed, haven't you? If you're not yet a Christian, you've noticed that Christians don't always obey God's commands. You've noticed that some of your Christian friends maybe don't often obey God's commands. And the reality is, like, it's impossible for us to completely obey God's commands as Christians, as human beings. Even as Christians, it's possible for us to completely obey God's commands this side of heaven. <clears throat> and if you're not yet a Christian, as I've said, you've probably noticed. The good news about Christianity is not that there's this whole set of rules and that we increasingly obey them more and more and we're getting closer and one day we'll perfectly obey it. That is not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is Jesus has already done that on our behalf. And the New Testament talks about this little phrase for us so many times. Jesus did this for us. Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a life of perfect obedience toward God. And then Jesus died the death that we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our, our sins. Jesus accepted God's judgment for all of our sin, for all of the times that we stray and wander, for all the times that we disobey God, either by accident or on purpose. Jesus takes the weight of all of that sin on himself on the cross. He is that one shepherd who has given us all of these good commands. He is the good shepherd that has lead us, led us and guided us. He's the good shepherd who's been the perfect example for us. The teacher, he did this with proficiency at one point in his life. Jesus did it perfectly. And then went to the cross and took all the weight of our imperfection, of our sin, of our guilt and shame for all the times that we've disobeyed his commands. He's not only the shepherd, though, he's also the sacrificial lamb. Jesus died there on the cross and in our place and for our sins. And then Jesus rose to give us a life that we could never have otherwise, a life where we are forgiven for our sins and now where we are free to obey God. Why? Because we love God. And if you're not yet a Christian, Christians don't obey Jesus just because they have to. They obey Jesus because they want to. We love him. And we're grateful for what he's done for us. And if you're a Christian, you know that. And you obey Jesus because the Bible tells you to, and Jesus commands you to, but you also obey Jesus because you know that Jesus has said, if you love me, obey my commandments, and you do love him. And so you want to obey his commandments. And this is the good news, that we can enjoy God in all that he's created, and we fear God, and we obey his commandments. And I hope that is good news for you as we wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it's hard to say with words how thankful we are for the life that you lived, a life of perfect obedience toward God. We could never do it. You've done it for us, and grateful is, is perhaps the best word we can use to say what we are. We are grateful, we are thankful we are humbled by that. And Lord, we, um, we see your obedience. We also see your sacrifice. We thank you for your sacrifice for us, that you're not just a good shepherd, but you are the sacrificial lamb. And so we want to say that we believe, we place our faith and our hope and trust in you in your sacrifice for our sins. And now we, we want to obey you because we love you, because we're grateful. And that's the same reason we want to worship you now in, in song, where we want to sing to you because we're grateful and we love you. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you that at the end of all of it, that you are the wisdom of God, that the gospel is the wisdom of God. We're grateful that you've revealed it to us, that you've given us faith to believe. 
We say thank you and we say it in your name, Jesus. Amen.